So, Maxton, how have you enjoyed our trip to Cameroon? All the stuff I read on TripAdvisor definitely pointed us in the right direction. But Google Translate fucking sucks. I can't get anyone to understand what I'm saying out here. Uh, Should have done what you did and uh, cram on Duolingo on the plane. Haha. <laughs> yeah, we really did have a lot of fun doing all the things we did here. So much so that I just remembered that we forgot to do what we originally came here to do in the first place, which is record an episode of One Hit Wonders of the World. Oh, wow! I can't believe that we forgot to do that! I think we've still got just about an hour before we have to board our flight, and I have all this audio equipment here set up. Do you just want to record it now while we wait? Let's go ahead and do it! Live from Cameroon, it's One Hit One Wonders Hit of the World! <laughs> I already hear you asking. Max and Trevor, what the fuck? It's a pandemic going on. Why are you in Cameroon? Well, great art doesn't stop sleeping. So we got some plane tickets and you know, they're like $100 plane tickets. I felt like a stupid opportunity to pass up. Speaking of great art, before we get today's show on the road, I just want to remind everyone to go head to YouTube or whatever, wherever you put that thing up and go check out the, the visual version of our last episode. I nice. don't know how many people actually did that. I think like 30 at last count, which is fine. Do you want to tell them where they can find that again? Yeah, that's at ohwow.link backslash video. You can find links to it on YouTube and Vimeo. But we didn't bring our cameras to Cameroon, which is pretty stupid considering camera is literally in the name of the country. It's fine. I think our visual episode is <sighs> a big success, but I must say it's nice to be operating exclusively within the medium of audio once again. You know, maintaining my corporeal form is a lot of hard work. I don't have a good response to that. That was pretty funny though. <laughs> Thanks, let's get the show on the road. <laughs> Who are we here to talk about today? We came to Cameroon after we decided that we were going to cover Manu Dubongo on the next episode of One Hit Wonders of the World and his hit, the international anthem, Sol Makosa. Okay, airport security is looking at us kind of weird, so let's, let's <laughs> cut that out. Listen, you guys don't know how to party! So, Maxton, when was the first time you ever heard about this guy? Because I'm going to be honest, the first time I ever heard about Manu Dibango was at the end of our last episode. Yeah, you actually admitted it live on screen at that visual you were talking about. Captured on video. I can't remember where I was first exposed to it, but I can definitely tell you where I first started appreciating that. And that was towards the tail end of the time that we were living in L.A., probably around the time that I first started this podcast. The year after that, in 2018, it showed up on my top songs of 2018 in Spotify, which was pretty interesting. And again, last year in 2020. So I was like, I think we ought to fast track this episode. I really started to appreciate it whenever I was into dance music really hard, investigating the origins of disco. And this is kind of one of the first disco songs. Like I said, I hadn't listened to this before our previous episode, but in the interim between the previous one and this one, I've been bumping it quite a bit, and this song slaps, it's really great. Right after we did our 2525 episode, you convinced me to restart a Last FM account, which I thought was pretty interesting in 2020. Get those scrobbles back on the charts. I mean, you actually made me aware of something. With Apple Music and Spotify, we don't really have direct access like we did whenever iTunes was a thing to like how much we're listening to a certain thing exactly man i'm always making people realize things that they didn't realize before whenever i was scrabbling on my first two last fm accounts it was like a perfunctory thing i'm doing to show off kind of thing like there's a fucking play count thing in itunes it was unnecessary to have last fm now last fm actually provides me with some really valuable metrics that i can't get anywhere else including the fact that Madi Dibango is like my third or fourth most played artist since I started this last FM. Now is the time I met Max Dibango appreciation. Let's talk about 
the backstory of Manu Dibango, the first thing you need to know is that his name when he was born was Emmanuel Dibango. And he was born in 1933 here in Douala, the largest city in Cameroon, then administered by the French. Right, and his father was a high-ranking civil servant, his mother was a fashion designer, and both of his parents were devout Protestants who disapproved of secular music. His parents represented two historically rivalrous Cameroonian ethnic groups, too. His mother was a Douala, and his father was a Yabasi. Real star-crossed lovers here. A little bit, I guess. Yeah, that's interesting. Manu's musical aptitude, though, became evident at an early age through his singing at the local church, where his mother was a choir leader. He received encouragement from the musical director of his church choir and surreptitiously broadened his musical perspective with a bamboo flute and a homemade guitar. Where are those demos? Bamboo flute demos. The origins of Makosa music are, it's like a vocal and guitar based style, kind of tracks with where he would wind up eventually later on in his career. Fascinating, what happened when he was 15 years old? When Manu was 15 years old, his parents decided they were gonna send him to France to study there. And he arrived carrying a gift of three kilograms of coffee for his host. I love that. And I wanna pause real quick, just to bring up and thank a friend of the show and once in future guest, Mary Schneider, uh, for sending me a little package of coffee in the mail a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I've actually recently got a French press and have gotten into brewing my own coffee as like a hobby. And upon learning this, Mary sent me a nice little uh, bag of uh, coffee beans uh, from the uh, Water Bean Coffee brand that I've been enjoying. So thanks again for that, Mary. Hope to have you back on the show again real soon. Coffee Mafia! <laughs> Manu was actually the only black child in this small French country town. Uh, he got on pretty well with his schoolmates who remembered him bringing the first bananas they had ever seen. Tight. For his part, he found Snow Exotic and tried to mail some home in an envelope. That's fucking adorable. Incredibly adorable, wholesome story. Whenever he was studying, he was considered a little too old to take up the violin, which is what he wanted to learn. I saw that on your notes, and I don't know what that means. How can you be too old to take up the violin? It reminds me of, like, in The Phantom Menace, when, like, Yoda was saying Anakin was too old to be a Jedi. Like, you need to be a certain... Like, you need to be a little kid to start playing the violin, where, like, the piano, you can take it up at any age. Do you know how this works? You you know more about musical instruments than I do. It was also, like, the 50s and 60s, so, like, who knows what the fuck those guys were thinking after. Maybe there was weird, like, body musical theory science that was saying, like, you know, <laughs> you need to start playing violin before you become, like, seven years old and your fingers grow too much, because, like... If you start playing violin, your fingers will grow the way they need to in order for you to be able to play the violin. And you can't play it unless you don't have those weirdly grown fingers. That spot that violinists always press their violin into the chest is like a specific indentation that just holds it up for them all the exactly. time. And that you need to start pressing it before you reach a certain age for it to develop. <laughs> Otherwise, it hardens by the time you get to like 12 and you can never play the violin properly. Just like how our third eyes have all been calcified. Just like that. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> he took up the classical piano for four years instead once he completed high school. Then when he was on holiday in 1953, a friend lent him a saxophone and he took to that instrument, enrolling for two years of private tuition. He made quick progress on both instruments, after which he joined a jazz band with noted Cameroonian guitarist and composer, Francis Bebe, and soon became a recognized entity within the local jazz circuit. That sounds nice. It sounds nice, yeah. but whenever he started performing in cabarets and jazz clubs, his family cut off his allowance. Is that because they were so opposed to secular music? Maybe they were just like, Manu, we're so disappointed in you. What you need to, you need to get your shit together. This is not the way of Jesus. Special effects. It was very creepy. I guess Manu was <laughs> raised by cyborgs or something. <laughs> so he started doing the rounds at these French clubs. Then he moved to Brussels in 1956, where he not only learned to play the vibraphone, but also expanded his stylistic vocabulary to include various West African forms, most notably Makosa, a Cameroonian genre based in Douala. It was then that he began to realize his ambition of forging a new musical sound by merging jazz with African popular traditions. And here is where we begin to talk about what went wrong. So 
So within months, he'd been signed by Joseph Cabaselli, the founding father of modern Congolese music. Pretty nice. Pretty cool. His band, African Jazz, spearheaded a musical revolution in Africa a couple years prior. Then in Brussels, he also met his future wife, Mary Josie, known as Coco, whom he married in 1957. In 1960, Manu toured Europe with African Jazz. The result was Manu's first single, 1961's African Soul, a mixture of jazz, popular music, and Ruma, currently going for $500 on Discogs. Any of you, any of you big ballers want to get a copy and uh, rip it and put it on the internet so we can hear the whole thing instead of this one song? That would be cool! Can we hear the song that we can listen to at least? Yeah, we can hear the one song. Let's hear the one song. That is one of the oldest Manu Dibango songs on the internet, Soulology. <laughs> Pretty good, pretty cool jazz track. I like it. I wish I was a little more familiar with the jazz of Africa so I could see like how much he's like already taking inspiration from Western music and American music because that is a big thing for him is like how much he was inspired by that. Yeah, that song we just listened to didn't have anything that immediately registered for me as having originated in Africa that like other forms of jazz don't have, but I'd be interested in knowing more about that. After the tour, Manu followed Kabaseli to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and he remained with the band until 1963 when the band broke up, and then he moved back home to Cameroon. There he established his own band and continued to broaden his knowledge of African regional styles. Yeah, once he got back, he composed the song Nazangina for Joseph Cabaselli, and that ended up being his only piece constructed purely from the indigenous Cameroonian Makosa. Cool, so this should sound like a pretty pure representation of what Makosa's supposed to sound like, right? Let's give this a listen. Let's hear it. This is La Grand Calier and La African Team, an alias of Joseph Cabaselli, with Nazangina, composed by Manu Dibanga. Hey, Lewenge, Lewenge. Kale, Mujo, Squame, Gonzalo, Namani, Banat, Mabulani. Hey. Notably more African already. Sure. Nasingina, Dimabolani. Nasingina, Lango, Dimabolani. Nasingina, Dimabolani. Nasingina, Lango, Dimabolani. Bito, Randi, Mundi, Oi, Pule. swinging party in the 60s. This man is good at sax, okay? Saxophone is a hard-ass instrument to play. You can be squeaky, you can be shitty. It's a difficult instrument, and he can really, like, even in these early recordings, it sounds like he's just kind of possessing that instrument, you know? Yeah, and that's definitely, like, a hallmark of his larger career, it would seem, because the uh, sax parts on Somacosa are fantastic. Definitely some of my favorite elements of the song. In the early 60s, Manu was appreciated by ordinary Cameroonians, but he hated the fact that politicians kept his artistic integrity under close surveillance. He was disenchanted with authorities that did not allow people quote-unquote to fantasize and quote-unquote to dream, who forced everyone to talk in quote-unquote cautious whispers and to be quote-unquote wary of everyone else. This is some real 1984 shit going on in Cameroon. Yeah, huh? I, I really have no idea what the political climate of 
of 1960s Cameroon was like, but I would hope that the country's politicians would have better things to worry about than this jazz guy. In 1964, disappointed in like the harmful atmosphere of the country we were just describing, made a close down his club, abandoned his musical dreams, and he left Cameroon for France after barely 16 months back at home. The good news is that in 1965, soul music was flourishing in Paris, and Manu was beginning an international ascent as a saxophonist. He supported himself as a studio musician, backing many African-American and African artists at a time when Europe was riding the wave of soul music. He took a job with the popular Dick Rivers Orchestra and later worked with Nino Ferrer, playing Hammond organ and saxophone. He also reunited with Cabaselli for recording sessions with Cuban flautist Don Gonzalo Fernandez on a Latin session that included a take on the Boogaloo. The resulting album, uh, this really rolls up the tongue, La Grand Calle, Don Gonzalo, Mano de Bongo, and La African Team remains an Afro-Latin classic. Let's listen to a track from this real quick. Here's La Grand Calle and La African Team with Boogaloo La Fontaine, composed by Joseph Cabaselli and Mano de Bongo. Play it. Like, no matter what you think of the guy's music, I think you gotta admire his like willingness to experiment, you know? This has been my favorite of the guy's songs that we've heard so far. I think this one definitely has like a kind of like scope and sense of ambition that like his other uh, the other tracks we listened to while they were good didn't really possess it definitely feels like on this one he's like starting to come into his own as someone who is a composer who works with different cultures in, in their ensuing combination exactly that intro was really good very well written intro i like this track a lot definitely a big fan of this one Already Manu Dibango in his super early career making some pretty solid moves. Yeah, by 1969, as a result of all these moves, Manu was an instantly recognizable figure on the Paris music scene, and he even signed his first major recording contract. Oh my god, that is so exciting. I wonder what he is going to call his debut album. He called his debut album his first <laughs> LP. Drum roll, please. Let's hit it. Saxy Party. <laughs> he's great he's great he's really good man he's really good i really like this guy on saxy party he was giving some kind of jazz sheen to some covers and some originals right and on the album he continued to experiment with new amalgamations of jazz and various popular musics uh, especially those stemming from africa and the african diaspora he included one such experiment on the b-side of a single in 1972 when he released the song he had been commissioned to write for the African Cup of Nations soccer match. That experiment was Soul Makosa, with a mixture of jazz Makosa and soul music that ultimately marked the turning point in his career. So wait, Soul Makosa is a B-side? That would appear to be the truth. To like, a soccer single? This isn't the first time we've covered a soccer single on this podcast, or at least a band with one. Weezer also had That's a, a World Cup single. Uh, represent? represent? Isn't it called Represent? Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. It's called Represent. Interestingly, that same year that Weezer presented uh, Represent in 2010, Shakira also did another World Cup song that actually, I can't remember the name of it right now, but if you look it up, that one is influenced by the Makosa rhythm that we're talking about right here. Damn. It's, got, it's another Makosa song. Pretty cool stuff, Shakira, right? Shakira, Weezer, this guy clearly is in the company of giants. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And we should take a listen to the A-side to Soul Makosa, another just really well-named song. Uh, Here's Manu Dibongo with Him de la Coupe de Afrique des Nations. Let's hit it. Makes me want to hit the old green field and kick the ball around. Goal! 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 Maxton, go over there. I'm going to kick this soccer ball to you, and then you headbutt it into the goal, okay? <laughs> 
Dude, do you want to play some FIFA? I'm really in the mood for some FIFA right now. Yeah, maybe when we get home. Anyway, <laughs> let, let's let's get back to Manu. I see here in the notes you've included a little, uh, very long quote from him where he describes uh, coming up with the song. And this is from his autobiography, Three Kilos of Coffee. Great name for your autobiography, Manu. Great job. Very good. Real quick, should we talk about how much coffee three kilograms is? Because it's quite a lot. This package that Mary sent me is 340 grams. And a kilogram is a thousand grams. So three kilograms is like six and a half pounds of coffee. So like in my head, I got this visual of Monte Dubongo just walking and hitchhiking all the way from Cameroon to France, just carrying six pounds of coffee on his shoulder. I'm picturing him like dragging it behind him in like a little red wagon or something. <laughs> anyway, let me read this quote. On one side of the 45, I recorded the commissioned piece. On the other, I recorded soul Makosa, written using a traditional Makosa rhythm with a little soul thrown in. Nice. In my Dwella neighborhood at my parents' house, I rehearsed this second piece. Pause! Pause, 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 At my parents' house, this song, this hit piece of indispensable pop culture that is reverberated throughout time and continues to, Marnabongo wrote it at his fucking parents' house. You can do it too! You can live with your parents yeah. and change the world. All you bedroom producers out there with your sound clouds, don't give up. Do not. One day you could have your music like illegally incorporated into a song by somebody like Michael Jackson. <laughs> One day you too could be commissioned to write a song for a soccer match. Let me keep going here. In my Dwala neighborhood at my parents' house, I rehearsed the second piece. The house had no air conditioning and the windows were wide open. Sucks. All the kids flocked around hearing me rehearse they fell over laughing. Unbelievable. How on earth had I concocted that mishmash? Poor Makosa really took a blow. My father was astonished. Can't you pronounce Makosa like everyone else? You stutter. Mamako mamasa. You think they're going to accept that in the capital? Roasted. Roasted. Yeah. The cup organizing committee reacted the same way. The march on side one they found impeccable. It is a banger. But on the other side, really, Manu has gone nuts. What possesses him to stutter like that? Here's another thing that I want to say about how people react to hit songs before their hits. This is what happens a lot, I feel like. It's either like, oh, we knew from the first second it was a hit, which sounds like something you fucking say in hindsight. To me, I feel like a song that goes for the highest highs is subject to ridicule from people who don't like it because it, because it just goes for something that's so different or daring. In the same kind of sentiment that you could do it from your parents' house that this story gives me, it also gives me a people are going to ridicule you because they don't like get your vision but like just do it anyway hindsight truly is 2020 <laughs> or 2021 although popular in europe both soul Makosa and manu himself were virtually unknown in north america until the tune was discovered and broadcast by a little radio disc jockey in new york city who was that dj that dj was david mancuso who found a copy of this song in a West Indian record store in Brooklyn and often played it at his parties at The Loft, the progenitor of the modern private warehouse party and one of the first disco clubs in general. It's weird to think that a dude, one guy, invented the concept of having a party at your house or at a warehouse that you like rent out and then you don't tell anyone you like send out the address or whatever this was the first guy to do it this was the first guy who did the the house party actually i was doing it like way before he was song though <laughs> was subsequently played heavily by frankie crocker who DJed at WBLS, New York's then most popular black radio station. Nice. Since the original release was so obscure, over 20 groups quickly released cover versions to capitalize on the demand for the record. More on that later. Monet performed at an extended stint in New York City in 1973, fanning the fires of his dance hit. American success brought French acclaim, and that year he performed to a full house at the prestigious Olympia Theater in Paris. And that summer, he was invited to perform with the Fania All-Stars at Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. Manu and Solmacosa would enjoy an unprecedented success for an African musician in the Latino and African American community. Yeah, Solmacosa really took the United States by storm. Uh, it thrust Manu into the limelight of popular music, and today it's considered by some to be the first widely popular disco track in America. Kind of like setting the stage for disco's takeover of the airwaves during the latter half of the 70s. 
And as a result, American-based Atlantic Records licensed the original Manu Dibango version from French record label Fiesta and released it as a single, which peaked at number 35 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in 1973. Hence why we're talking about him today. Good shit, Manu. I knew you could do it. I can't find any definitive information on the different versions of the song, but there are more than one, and I think it's kind of important to talk about. The original one that was on the first French pressing of the album, uh, it opens with a filtered guitar under a drum break with Manu whispering, Makosa, at the beginning. Uh, in this version, the vocals are panned a little off-center. Reverb is featured more heavily in the backing vocals and occasionally on Manu's vocals as well. It ends with a more standard fade-out. On streaming, you can find it on Manu Dibango's Best of Cop, as well as the soundtrack to the film Crooklyn. Its runtime is 4 minutes and 26 seconds. Atlantic released a 6-minute long edit of this version for the disco heads. But the version that I prefer seems to be a more polished re-recording, and I'm not really sure when that happened. There seems to be no in no information on this, but it's like, it's it, it's just, it sounds noticeably better. This is also the version that's found at the top of Manu Dibango's Spotify page and the one that I put at the end of the last episode. It opens with a Pharrell-style bass and drum chop that cuts off after six beats and gives way to Manu saying, Masoman. It's so good. It's really good. Before the filtered guitar appears. Overall, there's less reverb on this version, as well as a sharper bass and saxophone performance. It clocks in at a maddeningly confusing 4 minutes and 24 seconds. It's so, so easy to mistake one version for the other. And you can find this on Mario Dubongo's anthology collection, released in 2000. But on this version, Manu's voice sounds a little deeper, which is why I'm pretty sure it's a re-recording. But it ends with an absolutely crucial Manu laugh. <laughs> I, it's so good, it's really man. Good. It's, it's, it's great. Kind of perfectly encapsulates his entire musical spirit in like a half-second audio clip. It's that good. It gives the song a lot of character. That, too. So all that is great, but... What is Makosa? Makosa translates to I dance in the Duala language. The stylistic features of Makosa are the funky bass rhythm, horn section, and vocalists, which work in tandem to create a unified sound, urging the dancers to move in rhythmic motion. Its origins are the Kosa dances of young Dwala children with its hand clapping accompaniment. Western instruments are dominant in this genre. These are combined with Latin influences, popular music from other countries in Africa, especially Nigerian high life, and Congolese rumba to create a vibrant sound. It's a real pan-African genre. Additionally, Oxford English Dictionary defines Makosa as derivative of Kosa to peel or remove the skin of fruits or vegetables. The name refers to the twisting and shaking movements of the dancer. Makosa has developed over the years in Cameroon. A precursor to it called Mbasa Bay was a guitar music played in the neighborhoods of Douala in the 50s. Although people experimented with creating different variations of music in both urban and rural areas of Africa, it wasn't until the early 60s that Makosa began to be recorded by the guitarists and singers. So Soul Makosa was just that. A Makosa song in the style of American soul music. But I'm assuming that this was Manu's last genre mixing experiment? Uh, no. Why? It was not. Yes. Here is Manu Dubongo's Reggae Makosa. Ooh. Featuring reggae legends Sly and Robbie. Let's hear him. Dude, this rules too. Quite enjoying this. Great. Most of my. 
Understand the rhythm of Makosa a little more. If you if you don't and you're still interested, I was able to do a quick Google search earlier of just like Makosa mix. I mean, it's like an entire genre of music in Africa that is still like being made today. All right, so Maxton, Manu's doing so great. How could anything go wrong at this point? This is an interesting what went wrong section because it's only like as wrong as you think it is, right? How wrong you think this what went wrong section is is going to depend on your view of copyright law. Copyright law. So let's talk about it. Manu Dibango's record company, Fiesta, was last in line to believe in his success. It was like the first time that an African artist had sold so many records, and initially they were reluctant to print more editions of the single. And as a result of that, Somakosa inspired countless imitators instantly due to the song's unavailability. The song was so in demand, yet so hard to find, that covers and bootlegs flooded the market to fill the void. Over 20 groups recorded cover versions of the song to capitalize on demand, and at one point, eight of the covers were on the Billboard chart at the same time as the original. Most of these imitations were performed by studio bands and funk outfits with no big name recognition of their own. But there were other labels, such as Paul Winley Records, who bootlegged and re-released the same exact recording of Solmacosa, credited to their own house band, alongside a batch of mid-quality instrumental funk tracks. Before the song was picked up by Atlantic and copyrighted in America, it was basically open season for and this is a word that you say that always kind of strikes me as something that sounds like a little problematic. Shysters. Shysters is not a bad word. It's not. It just sounds like it might be like a slur. Like Shysters. Shyster is a slang word for someone who acts in a disreputable, unethical, or unscrupulous way, especially in the practice of law, sometimes also politics. I'm not or saying business. you're wrong, but Wikipedia. up until I'm not saying you're wrong, but up until a couple of years ago, I didn't know that like gypsy was something that you're not allowed to say. I would easily buy it if you gave me a similar revelation about the term shyster. Hang on. What am I hanging on for? The New York Law Journal's article is shyster anti-Semitic. Oh, see, there you go. Yes, yeah, I, 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 maybe, maybe I need to. And I don't even know if it really is. I'm just saying it sounds like something that would, like, after using it for many years, you would learn that, like, oh, this has an origin in something terrible. The etymology of the word is not generally agreed on, probably based on the German scheiter, literally defecator or shitter. All right, but Germans are a people who have historic problems. Oh, with, here we with... go. Here we go. Various false etymologies have suggested an anti-Semitic origin, possibly associated with the character Shylock from Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice, but there is no clear evidence for this. Hmm. All right, well, I assume you're going to leave all of this in the episode, but let's just for move sure. on. For sure. Let's just move on. So to understand the implications of what was happening? Let me remind you because I know uh, the it's, shysters. It's, it's been the a shysters. minute before the we got shysters. no, but before we got into that little little the minutia of that, we were All talking you about how. Remember is that there were shysters, dude. This is hard. Just remind everyone what happened. There was a guy, and he was like. I'm just gonna re-record Soul Makosa and then like put some of my shitty funk tracks behind it and like release it under my own name. A shyster. Did it? Was it a re-recording or was it the actual recording backed by these originals? It was the original recording, and then the other tracks were original tracks that they made that were like just kind of like generic funk, sometimes Makosa ripoffs. Okay, so to understand the implications of that, we need to zoom out a little bit and talk about someone who is the complete antithesis of the focus of our show. Michael Jackson! In case you're unfamiliar, Michael Jackson was this child prodigy who fronted this band with some of his other family members in it, the Jackson Five. And in 1982, he was about to put out his sixth solo album, Thriller, which you may be familiar with as the best-selling album of all time. Is that still true? It's technically been eclipsed by an Eagles compilation album. Mm, fuck the Eagles. First of all, fuck the Eagles, and second of all, not a studio album. So, yes, Thriller is sure. still the best-selling album. More importantly, though, fuck the Eagles. For the opener, Wannabe starting something. He interpolated the main stuttering chant from Solmacosa with a surgical variation, deleting a syllable 
and altering two others. Where Manu sang Mamako Mamasa Mako Mako Sa, Michael sang the now legendary Mama Say Mamasa Mamako Sa. intentional do you think that change was? Do you think he just misremembered what he was trying to rip off, or do you think this is some dark magic pop Illuminati bullshit? What do you mean by dark magic pop Illuminati bullshit? Like, do you think he misremembered it on purpose to try and skirt copyright law? Do you think he misremembered it because he genuinely misremembered it? Or do you think he actually like, consciously made those changes because he thought that the song would be more successful? I think the answer is probably somewhere in the middle, and I think he just probably changed it because he thought it sounded better. Occam's Razor, baby. Sure, Occam's Razor. I don't think he was like, it's only going to be a hit if we change this. I think he was probably, you know, singing to himself, and then maybe he got it wrong, and he was like, mama say, mama say, oh, it actually kind of rolls off the tongue a little better if I do it like that and I'm able, I'm able to get more in the pocket. You know, I bet that's what it was. It's the science of hooks. Yeah. It's super interesting stuff to me. What I thought you might have been asking was, did he change it just as much as he would need to change it in order to get away with putting it in the song and not crediting Manu? And I kind of was asking that at the same time. Like, like I'm wondering if, like, if you think that that was his intention or you think he was approaching it from like an artistic perspective where he was like, no, I want to make the best song possible. I think it was he probably made the change in service of getting more in the pocket. But there's Mm -hmm. a famous Vanilla Ice interview where they're talking to him about how he used the bass line from Under Pressure by David Bowie and Queen. And got sued within an inch of his life for it. I think we could do an episode on him, I think. Maybe we'll talk about it during that episode, but he defended himself by saying they changed it just enough for it to not be a direct rip. Like, there's a quote where he says, you know, there goes, do, 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 and ours goes, do, 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 and it's this little change, that little change. But no, I think Michael Jackson was probably doing more for the sake of the art rather than trying to pull over any illegal moves. In order to secure the bag, Michael claimed that this Dwala Turner phrase was actually Swahili. But what he did not realize was that Manu Dibongo was not going to let him get away with this. Using the power of money, Manu sued Michael in 1986 and settled out of court for a million French francs, roughly equivalent to 350,000 2021 US dollars. That's pocket change for MJ. Probably like a pretty safe bet to say that this was one of the like easier lawsuits that Michael Jackson had to face. Oh, this for time. sure. Yeah. It's sort of a footnote in the larger scale of the controversies that engulfed Oh, yeah. Life. If you hear about Michael Jackson going to court, odds are that the other <laughs> the guy suing him is not going to be this dude from Cameroon. Not Manu Dibongo. No. <laughs> Uh, this would not be Manu and Michael's last legal rodeo, however. Just a couple years before Michael Jackson passed away in 2007, superstar Rihanna interpolated Michael Jackson's variation of the Soul Makosa hook on her single, Don't Stop the Music. Here's everyone's favorite Super Mario fan, Rihanna. has slaps, dude. Probably the best Rihanna album, if you ask me. This part's great. Please don't stop the music. These producers were on to something, man. Wouldn't it have been kind of cooler, though, if she had actually gone with the original quotation from the song? It would have been cooler, but I don't think she knew Manu Dibongo, and she was kind of tight with Michael Jackson. So when she asked Michael Jackson in 2007 for permission to sample his line, he approved the request without contacting Manu beforehand. Just get him on the phone. I guess he forgot that he didn't write that, (laughs) which I guess, like... When you're Michael Jackson... He's got other stuff going on. First of all, he's got other stuff going on. Second of all, I'm sure he's ripped off tons of stuff he hasn't been sued for. Who's to say? Anyway, DeBongo's attorneys brought that case before a court in Paris, demanding 500,000 euros in damages and asking for Sony BMG, EMI, and Warner Music to be barred from receiving Mama Say Mama Saw-related income (laughs) 
until the matter is resolved. <laughs> but do you think that was how it was rained? Like in the yes, yeah, no. This is. The, do you see the air quotes? Yeah. No more, Mama. Say, Mama, some money for you. I guess we gotta call off the shipment on the Mama. Say, Mama, sa Mama coffee mugs. Not so fast, because the judge ruled that Debongo's claim was inadmissible. Ah, uh, objection. Yep. A year earlier, a different Paris area judge had required Universal Music to include Debongo's name in the liner notes of future French releases of Don't Stop the Music. And at the time of this earlier court appearance, DeBongo had withdrawn legal action, thereby waiving his moral right to seek further damages. Guys, this is a crazy combo. This is record label legal fuckery. Yeah, now that's what I call being hoisted by your own petard. He reacted to it though. Speaking to the Africa report from the Pan-African Festival in Algeria, DeBongo said, I'm not bitter. He was out of the ordinary, but in both good and bad ways. Obviously, he touched millions of people with his music. I don't know about your phrasing there. <laughs> he said, I love his music, and he certainly danced like an angel. You know, Wagner was a fascist, but that doesn't mean you can't like his music. True, Manu. Very true. Manu is a proponent of separating the artist from the art. But he said what he did in agreeing to allow Rihanna to use the sample without asking. That's not right. Yeah, so, you know. Maybe he just wanted a little more money, but I mean, it's not like he... We'll talk about this later. It's not like he was really hurting. All the controversy, I can look past that and enjoy the music. But giving Rihanna permission to use this sample without asking me, that's where I draw the line. So, Michael Jackson and Rihanna were definitely, like, the highest profile people to sample Somakasa. They are far from the only people to do that. Yeah, Will Smith, Kanye West, Jay-Z, Beyonce, A Tribe Called Quest, and The Ghetto Boys have all interpolated pieces of Somakasa into their music, and all after Michael Jackson did, turning it into a hip-hop staple as well as a disco one. And digging into it all, you begin to wonder how much role the myriad cover versions, rip-offs, and bootlegs that popped up around the song's original release played into the authorship confusions and potentially helped inspire subsequent interpolations of the song down the line. And once Michael Jackson got his hands on it, the game of musical telephone would continue for generations to come. Though he may be a little on the litigious side, I would wager to bet that the constant transformation of the Makosa that continues to refract throughout the world was a great source of pride for Manu. His musical vision of stylistic blending reverberating through musical history in a countless number of new mixtures. Yeah, he's just an example of, you know, just because you're proud of the impact that your work has had on the genres you love, doesn't mean you also can't secure the bag. <laughs> That's the lesson here, right? You kind of have it both ways. Speaking of securing the bag, let's talk about what came so in the wake of Sol Makosa's explosion in the 70s, a man who toured the United States with the Fania All-Stars, a massive salsa collective, but nothing else caught on for him. So he came back to Paris after three years and discovered the joys and sorrows of being local. He said, my records sold in England, but not France. The French mistrust anything French. They have a complex. <laughs> Tell me about his next album, Makosa Man. It continued the spread of Dabango's good time dance gospel. He left the Euro-American limelight in 1975, but he accepted the prestigious post of musical director for the National and Television Orchestra of the Ivory Coast. He remained based in cosmopolitan Abidjan, the Paris of Africa, for four years. He released more new albums such as Manu 76 and Super Kumba and continued to broaden the jazz funk envelope. Do you need to listen to Manu's 1 through 75? in order to get Manu 76, or can you just jump right in? He was also active in uh, film composition around this time. He did the music for Ozmane Sembene's uh, celebrated 1976 feature Seto, as well as incidental background music, commercials, and singles for the African market. While recording his next LP, Homemade, in 1978 in Ghana and Nigeria, he struck up a friendship with Afrobeat pioneer Fela Kuti in Lagos, where they shared Afrobeat grooves, which would influence the album's composition. Kind of surprised it took Fela Kuti so long to pop up in this episode. Following a big show in Jamaica, Manu met reggae's famed rhythm crew Sly and Robbie, with whom he recorded Gone Clear and the aforementioned Reggae Makosa, which was released as a single in 1979. Three years later, he toured France with the American jazz trumpeteer Don Cherry, exploring everything from soul to Malian folk music and Thelonious Monk. 
Soon after, he was blowing ice-cold funk on his album, Electric Africa, which featured legendary keyboardist Herbie Hancock. So like, like I said, nothing has really gone wrong for Manu Dibango, right? No. We are in year like 20 or 30 of a really successful worldwide music career. This dude is just chilling. He's kicking it. In 1984, he celebrated 30 years in the music industry with an electric pop single called A Ballet Dance, which exhibited the new hip-hop style from New York. And that quickly became one of the top African songs of the year. Not only one of the disco pioneers, but one of the rap pioneers? Just going through the generations, killing it as they come to it. (laughs) Like, that's what I love about him. He's like, new genre, I'm going to learn it and make a song off of it. And then, like, go to another genre. It's like, he's not interested in bands or artists. He wants to do a whole genre, and then he gets bored of a genre, and he does a new genre. It's like, he has, like, this ADHD musical mixing creativity thing that is, it's, it's really inspiring. Yeah, you can see it even early in his career. Like, you know, he would get a vibraphone, and he would learn to play it. He would get a saxophone, and he'd learn to play it. 30 years later, he's like coming across new genres and he learns how to do it. You know, he, he doesn't change. Let's give a listen to Manu Dibango's 1984 African jazz hip hop song, A Ballet Dance. <laughs> those drums. You need those drums to have a good rap song in the 80s. You need the beat. I love vocoded monitors. That was great. That was very good. This is another hit, dude. This is great. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised this wasn't bigger. Did he say his name? That was fire as hell. He said his name through a vocoder. Manu received some criticism of his shows following these records. One journalist noted that Dibango's music was, quote, less pure in source than other big-name African artists. In response to such questions of his authenticity as an African musician, Manu asserted the freedom of all musicians to absorb and mix influences. He said, the musician, even more than the composer, hears agreeable sounds around him and digests them. The voices of Pavarotti and Barbara Hendricks have taught me to love opera. In my imaginary museum, they join Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, and Charlie Parker. I haven't found anyone better. Mozart doesn't stop me from being African. I like mixtures. That's fucking awesome, Manu. I like that little oblique reference he makes to having an imaginary museum. It makes me picture him like going into the zone and traveling to like his mind palace like in that episode of Sherlock or whatever. I love Manu Dubango's brain and what goes on there and all the things he tries to mix. That same year in 1984, he joined more than a dozen artists on the fundraising single Tom Tom Poor La Ethiopie, released indignantly in response to hit Christmas single Do They Know It's Christmas by charity supergroup Band-Aid, which many Africans considered condescending. Wow. If I couldn't like this guy enough already, <laughs> he recorded an indignant response single? <laughs> to do they know it's Christmas? My ba- that's great. That's real. What if it was just called like, uh, yeah, we do. That would be really nice, wouldn't it? Really cool move on this guy's part. We will table that conversation until our forthcoming episode on Band Aid. Can't wait for that. Learn all the people Manu Dibango released a disc record towards. Yeah. So let's jump ahead a little bit to 1988. Manu received a decoration as a Knight of Order and of Valor from his home country of Cameroon. So this guy's a knight. That's pretty cool. Fucking killing it. Your Highness Manu Dibango. A Knight of Order and of Valor. That's tight as fuck. That's, that's very cool. However, as Dibango observed, 
the authorities could decorate me with all the medals they liked oh, without shit. doing much to stop the descent into hell oh, shit. for artistic creativity in a country where it is not uncommon to mobilize the military to raid clubs. Holy fuck. Or to impose entertainment taxes with the intention of crippling artists who are perceived to be critical or unpalatable. DeBongo felt condemned to be an expatriate. Real authoritarian vibes going on in Cameroon. They knighted him and he's like, man, I don't want that. Yeah. Treat artists better. Storming the club with the tank? Yeah. For what? Who was playing? In 1992, he recorded Africa, an album of African hits with guest appearances by Peter Gabriel, Sinead O'Connor, Paul Simon, Tony Allen, and many other icons of African music. The concept was to have famous African musicians sing famous African songs from other regions of Africa. Though it was envisioned as a comeback album, it couldn't really generate any Western hits upon its 1994 release, but it did generate a new version of Soul Makosa. Cool, let's listen to this. Let's listen to the 94 Wakafrica version of Soul Makosa. Yeah. who knows the rules of participating in the music industry. And that is, if you're making a comeback album, you gotta open with your hit. And it still rocks 20 years later. Right now, if we're ranking the different versions of Soul Makosa, I'd probably put that a little bit under that original cut of Soul Makosa, which are both still well below the version that I love, the re-recorded version with the Maso Man intro. Let's get closer to the current day. You have like a little New York Times profile from 1995 here in the notes that provides a great illustration of Manu. Yeah, let's talk about it. It says, he looks more pensive than alienated distracted rather than worried, with the cartoon channel running a silent Woody Woodpecker. His daughter, who is his business manager, is on the line. Love that. There's a record to promote, tours to set up, invitations from television shows. Considering Manu's busy career and their spacious duplex on the top of a shining building in Paris's 20th arrondissement, the DeBongo family does not seem to have a money problem. His shaven cranium has leveled his age for more than a decade now. Author's note, I think every single one of his albums has him bald on it, which leads me to like have this vision of him as a kid with those six pounds of coffee, like still fucking bald. I feel like you're definitely imagining him having that super deep resonant laugh even as a small child yes absolutely like yes he, for he sure he goes to he goes to mail the snow only to find that it's melted and he goes oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly but like i said his shaven cranium has leveled his age for more than a decade now it has always made him appear like a wise village elder and he does indeed have a philosophical bent you know like we've been saying with the mind palace and shit <laughs> His age, then 60 years old, and what he does, says, and the way that he says it, adds up to a combination of father figure, pop star, jazz man, composer, media personality, and oral historian. It sounds like he had a pretty interesting little career over the 90s, too, because here in your notes, you say he hosted his own primetime French TV show. Yes, he Salut did. Manu. Do you know anything about that? Like, what was, what was that? Oh, dude, there are episodes of this on the internet. Here's one right here. He just has on artists that he wants to showcase that he likes. Interesting. So I'm skipping around in your notes here a little bit, but I think also in the 90s, Wife Passed Away, which sent him on a more spiritual path for his next album, which included the participation of an entire gospel choir. Pretty cool. Then he also collaborated with Cuban guitarist and singer Aliatis Ochoa of Buena Vista Social Club fame on the album Cube Africa? Cube Africa. Where Manu lent his silky sax to a set of Cuban standards. Then in 1998, his achievements were celebrated by the rural community where he grew up with the naming of a cultural center after him. Very cool. He reciprocated by donating the saxophone he had used on Solmacosa. So sweet. Yeah. As he matured into one of African music's elder statesmen in the 2000s, he was celebrated with various anthologies and reissued and was crowned Cameroonian of the century by popular vote back in Africa. Cameroon Sorry for anyone else who might have been really holding out for that title. <laughs> Literally every other Cameroonian's 
to exist in the last like hundred years. He harbored a deep and ongoing concern for the well-being of humanity, and he often used his music and influence to garner support for various humanitarian causes. And in recognition of these contributions to the development of music, as well as cross-cultural dialogue, particularly between Europe, Africa, and North America, he was named the UNESCO Peace Artist of the Year in 2004. Basically, the governments of the world are like, Monte Dibongo, we fuck with you. How could you not? He celebrated his 80th birthday with a televised anniversary concert at the Olympia in Paris in 2013. He's up there in age by this point. He's 80, but all this time he's never stopped recording. In 2017, he released M&M, a collaboration with a jazz saxophonist from Mozambique. And in 2018, he released another album with the name Cube Africa, a collaboration with the Cuban group Quarteto Patria. Just like Michael Jackson being a musician for long enough that he kind of forgets what he rips off, I think that Manu Dibango was an active musician for long enough that he forgot like what he had named all of his albums. Potentially. This quote I have says, it is impossible to overstate Manu Dibango's importance in the realm of African and world music. As a composer, musician, producer, and empresario, he has had a profound impact on African music, most notably its expatriate nexus in Paris. His soul Makosa inspired disco, Latin soul, and hip hop genres, and influenced an entire generation of musicians and dancers. A monogamous figure throughout his decades spanning career, he helped open the door to new fusions and adventures in world music. But even the mighty can fall. This is a little bit of a bummer to end this story on, isn't it? Go ahead and let it rip. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, on March 18th of 2020, one week after the World Health Organization declared a pandemic outbreak, I'm sure you can see it. where this is going. God damn it. An official statement on Manu's Facebook page confirmed that he was admitted to a hospital in France for contracting COVID-19. God damn it! And the statement said he was resting well and calmly recovering but unfortunately his condition worsened and he passed away less than a week later on March 24th. One of the articles that I cited by Francis Niamjo, a professor at the University of Cape Town, ends with this really wonderful summation that I think is worth quoting in full. Dibongo leaves behind a towering record of Afropolitan musical genius of truly global magnitude to feed and inspire many a generation to come. Manu Dibongo does not have to be in Cameroon, Africa, or physically in the world to continue to do things of relevance. That's a quote as spiritual as the man itself. I think we should probably start lining up for our flight pretty soon, but on our way over, let's get into these covers. As we said earlier, there are like over 20 cover versions, so of course I'm not gonna talk about all of them, but there are a couple of neat revisions that came about in 2011, both involving Manu Dibango itself, but I think it would be appropriate to cap the episode with. So let's give a listen to these covers by Manu Dibango of Sol Makosa. And he already did one. He really just can't let this thing die, can he? And that's okay, because he shouldn't. Here is Manu Dibango with Sol Makosa 2.0, even though he already made a revision for his 1994 album, but who is counting? I will never not get a kick of joy out of the laugh. No, it's always good. Can you feel it? Yeah, that's the old school. Saxophone with the jazz solo. That's right, it's my new divango. But this guy sucks. Yeah, I'm not really enjoying this. That's right, Cameroon's in here. Africa's taking over this year. I think, I think we've heard enough of this one. Manu, you totally could have gotten Justin Timberlake. It might have happened. What's next? So the, the last cover we have is a cover by Les Nubians that features Manu Dibango. Also from 2011, New Solmacosa. New spelled uh, with N-U with an umlaut. Like new metal. Oh, this really ups the syncopation. I like it. Isn't that the national motto of France? This is cool. Assimilation, précaution, manifestation, réaction, détermination. 
99. <laughs> hey, there he is. I love it. Always good to hear him. I love that he jumped on this track basically to do ad-libs. Yeah. Were they singing the Michael Jackson version of it, though? It sounded like it. They were doing the Michael Jackson version of it. Crazy. That's pretty interesting. More time is a flat circle stuff. Who knows what Mama really said. Anyways, I think we've got a few more minutes until they get to our boarding area. While we wait to get on the plane, do you want to go through our attributes? Yeah, I, I have some pretty interesting attributes for you that I, I don't even really know how to explain. So as a result, I'd like you to go first. Sure, I'll go through my attributes. Do you want to tell the audience about what this segment even is? Because it's my favorite part of the show when you oh, do. Oh, sure, sure. Excuse me. I do need to make that clear. This is the attribute section of the show where we rate the song that we just described on any scale that we so desire. But it's got to be the same scale per episode. That's the most important part of this whole thing. Let me talk about my scale, though. Please. So we've already discussed when Manu's parents originally sent him to study in France at the age of 15, they sent him bearing a very valuable gift, namely three kilograms of coffee. Oh boy. So to honor their sacrifice on today's episode, I'll be giving several different elements of Solmacosa a certain amount of coffee. Wonderful. Measured, of course, in kilograms. I'm going to give the song's sax arrangements five kilograms of coffee because much like that amount of coffee, that sax is guaranteed to get you up and moving. Ha! I'm going to give the song's main stuttering chant that his dad and that soccer committee or whatever weren't really a fan of, seven kilograms of coffee, because the stutter kind of makes it sound like Manu's maybe had a little too much caffeine. The coffee motif really is recurrent. And I'm going to give the spoons that Manu DeBongo must have had to have to sue not only Michael Jackson, but Rihanna as well. Yeah. 9,999 <laughs> kilograms of coffee. <laughs> Although that's like a way higher number than the other attributes got. So there's no fucking way it's gonna fit in his wagon. I think I might have written that down wrong. Anyway, what are what are your attributes, Maxton? At long last, reveal them to me. Some people who listen to the show may know that I have a hobby that I share with Manu Debungo. <laughs> I did know this about you. So today, I'll be giving sax tributes. I was wondering why it took you so long to get through security. It was because you had the sax. <laughs> so the fact that I can't speak the Douala language to understand everything Manu is saying, I give that a... <laughs> not a fan. That's fair. But the perfectly synchronized and syncopated rhythm section. I give that. Was that a sax thing I should recognize or no. just like a nice little sax thing? It was just a nice little sax thing. Okay. <laughs> it was a nice little sax thing. Thanks. Being a song good enough to inspire eight simultaneously charting cover versions. I give that. <laughs> No? Pretty nice. I heard that. Yeah, yeah. I, I knew that one. <laughs> nice work. Now, most crucially, I give the indispensable silky smooth outro laugh, <laughs> which perfectly encapsulates his entire spirit as a person. Do you know what I give that? Good enough. That was my sax tributes. And that was our episode on uh, Mono de Bongo yeah. and his hit Solmacosa. Now, before we get on this plane, do you want to tell everybody where they can find us online and such? I'm going to have to make it quick because they're calling our boarding group. Yep. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Find us on Twitter where our handle is at OneHitWonderCast with the numeral one out front. Please reach out with impassioned emails or audio recordings to OneHitWonderCast, all spelled out at gmail.com for a chance to be featured on the show. Visit our website at owow.link or onehitwondersoftheworld.com if you're not into the whole brevity thing. And stay tuned for our next episode. Go on, go on, leave me breathless. Breathless by the Coors. Oh man, we're talking about Breathless by the Coors? I love this song. That's what's up next on the next episode of 
one-hit wonders of the world. I can't wait. Turn that down just a little bit while we get on the plane. Hey, how's it going? We're, we're boarding the flight back for the States. Sure thing. Let me just see those tickets, please. Here you go. Oh, my goodness. Are you Trevor Ickrath and Maxton Stenstrom, host of the podcast One Hit Wonders of the World? Oh, yeah. We totally are. Hey, have you listened to the show? No, I'm kind of more of like a last podcast on the left kind of guy or my favorite murder. Oh. Um, but I have been instructed to inform the two of you that you've actually been barred from re-entering the United States uh, at this time. Yeah, you're actually both going to have to come with me because uh, we need to discuss the contents of Mr. Stenstrom's little carry-on there. Yikes! Well, I guess we've got some explaining to do. Okay, boys. Until next time, I've been Trevor Ickrath. Follow me. Ow, I'm, I'm coming. And I need to speak to my attorney. Sir, can you please say, stay wonderful? Sure. Stay wonderful. Oh, God. Oh, God.